Kansas City barbecue institution Gates has a famous saying. You know what it is? Hi, may I help you? That's right. And in the way it's delivered, it's almost like a command. Like if you're not initiated, it's kind of like, whoa. And, and I think really, hi, may I help you? It's like a slightly more polite way of saying, what do you want? What do you want? And I think the phrase, what do you want, has a really interesting variety of applications. Right? Those same words can sound a whole lot different depending on the context and depending on the tone. So if you get somebody maybe uh, with a ring at your, at your door or a knock on the door on a Saturday morning and they're a solicitor, you might not open the door and go, what do you want? Like exasperated tone. Or uh, those of you who are still around this age or those of us who can think back to when we were, uh, let's say, 16, 17, and your parents are pounding on your door or today your mom or dad won't quit texting you. And you just want to say, what do you want? Uh, there's always like that extra syllable at the end, right? What do you want? Uh, uh, you know, that can take a different tone. Or if my, one of my kids are sick and I'm going to go to CVS and get them some medicine and Gatorade or 7-Up or whatever, then it would take on a very tender tone. Like I would say to my kid, I'm going to go to CVS. What do you want? Right? It can, can sound a whole lot of different ways. And we may want very different things from very different people. So I'm going to ask you a reflective question right at the top here. When it comes to God, what do you want? I have in my notes to be silent longer than I feel is comfortable. (laughs) I don't know how I'm doing. When it comes to God, what do you want? I'd say at my worst moments, what I want most from God is ease. Ease. I just like God to make things easy. In my best moments, I want more of God and less of me. One of the letters of John says that. He must increase, I must decrease. Author and theologian Ruth Haley Barden said this about what we want from God. It is your desire for God and your capacity to reach for more of God than you have right now that is the deepest essence of who you are. There's a place within each of us that is spiritual in nature. Here God's spirit dwells within our spirit and here our truest desires make themselves known. From this place, we cry out to God for deeper union with him and with others. In this series called The Journey of Forgiveness, we've been laying out three phases of progressing towards forgiveness. Vengeance, obedience, and transcendence. Now, if you missed a week, you can find uh, these messages on our website at carney.church. We also have a new podcast called Layman's Terms. And, and you can kind of get a deeper dive into the topics from, sun, from Sunday uh, with, with kind of some different takes. And so we've been excited about how that's been going. Vengeance, obedience, and transcendence. Each of these is really a different answer to the question, what do you want? The journey of forgiveness, at the bottom of it, What it all comes down to 
is a transformation of desire. You want different things. That what you want actually changes. The first phase is vengeance. And we kind of coyly also called this the red truck phase. Which sounds a little crass. But we're just trying to be honest about the tiny part of you. Maybe the major part of you. That wouldn't mind seeing the person who has harmed you get taken care of by a big red truck. Just trying, trying to, not, it's a, I'm, we've tried to say in week one, that's an okay place to be in, not a great place to stay in. And what we want here is to see the people have made us suffer also suffer. The second phase is obedience. This is what we talked about last week. We also called this the roll your eyes phase because this is when Jesus talks about stories about the unforgiving servant and you just roll your eyes like, okay, Jesus, okay. It's the worst. Jesus told a story about a servant who was thrown in jail after refusing to extend forgiveness in the same way it was demonstrated to him. And he hauntingly concludes the story by saying, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. That's Matthew 18, 35. In the obedience phase, we don't actually want to forgive. We want to avoid this. We want to avoid consequences. Now, this third phase is transcendence, or what I call the long-haul phase. I spent like 10 minutes on Google Images looking for a long road. In the transcendence phase, that, to transcend means to rise above. And it's the long-haul phase because, in my experience, it typically doesn't take place overnight. In the transcendence phase, what we want actually changes from wanting to see our enemies suffer to wanting to be obedient to Jesus to actually wanting the best for people that have hurt us. Loving them and praying for them. So this is how I frame up the journey of forgiveness. These three stages. Vengeance where we want our enemies to suffer. Obedience where we want to avoid consequences and listen to Jesus. And transcendence where we want the best for our enemies. Where we go above and beyond obedience and, and, and vengeance to desire the best for our enemies. So it's to this third phase of transcendence we'll turn our attention today. What I hope we'll discover together as we study God's word is that as the cross calls us higher, God changes our desire. Our scripture today is not a long one. Jeremy, was that uh, pretty tough to read one, one verse? No, it took it easy on you today, right? But the verse Luke 23, 34's impact is disproportional to its word count. Towards the end of the book of Luke, Jesus has been betrayed. He's been tried, arrested, beaten, mocked, and now crucified as an innocent man. And in the midst of his humiliating execution, Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. The capacity for Jesus to have the grace for people who are killing him as they're currently in the process of doing so is astonishing. It's astonishing. 
you know, as, as, a, as a preacher, you, you read things in preparation for the sermon. And sometimes I come across stuff and just think, well, I can't say it any better than that. So I wanted to read to you what the founder of the Methodist movement, John Wesley, said about Luke 23, 34. He said, how striking is this passage. While they are actually nailing him to the cross, he seems to feel the injury they did to their own souls more than the wounds they gave him. And as it were, to forget his own anguish out of a concern for their own salvation. This is our leader. This is Jesus. This is who we're to pattern our lives after. Earlier in his ministry, Jesus famously said, You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. There are times that this might feel impossible. And when we see the example of Jesus forgiving his enemies who persecuted him, mid-execution, it it almost adds a layer of, of impossibility. But at the same time, it reinforces Jesus' legitimacy. Here's what I mean. There are all sorts of, of wise people, even religious leaders, who, who in their path, in their method, or in their beliefs have said, do as I say. That's what they model, do as I say. I believe that only Jesus uniquely modeled a much different approach. Do as I do. I think Jesus stands alone among religious leaders and founders. How are we ever to aspire to Jesus' transcendent level of forgiveness? Who could possibly do this? In October of 2006, a gunman opened fire in a one-room Amish schoolhouse in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. Five children lost their lives. Five more people were injured, and the gunman took his own life. This is from an NPR article. You may remember this. The shooter's family had a private funeral for their son, but as they went to the gravesite, they saw as many as 40 Amish start coming out from around the side of the graveyard, surrounding them like a crescent. Terry Roberts, the shooter's mother, said in another interview, love just emanated from them. This incredible act from the Samish community captured the country's attention. And since then, there have been articles and books and even movies made about the incredible capacity for forgiveness of the Amish community in Nickel Mine, Pennsylvania. You can read more about it in a book called Amish Grace, How Forgiveness Transcended Tragedy. You know, I was talking to folks in between services and, and just the, the incredible, like beyond words, strength that they had to surround the shooter's family to be comforting others as they themselves deserve to be comforted defies description. And as shocking as we might find what they were able to do, the authors state that there, the Amish extension of grace was neither calculated nor random. Here we go. Rather, it emerged from who they were 
long before that awful October day. So how do we become the type of people that build the capacity to forgive? How do we become like those Amish saints who demonstrated the transcendent forgiveness of Jesus, rising above their pain, their anger, their grief? The example of Jesus on the cross shows us that the journey of forgiveness is a climb towards the cross. And with the cross in mind, Jesus' forgiveness, both in what he said and in what he was doing, is codified. It's, it's woven in to the other imperatives in the New Testament. Colossians 3.13 says, Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance to give against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And how can we not hear the words of Jesus echo in our minds? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. The cross redefines our relationship with God and how we should orient ourselves toward our neighbors. Everything changed in light of the cross. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. As Jesus was lifted up, giving his life once and for all as a sacrifice for the sin of the world, he forgave those who executed him unjustly. And because of his work on the cross, God justifies us. Justifies is a word that means pardon, or it means we are held blameless. And then we're commanded the scripture tells us, to do the same. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. So how? How do we do that? The good news is that I believe that this capacity for forgiveness doesn't just come as the result of our own efforts. As if we could close our eyes and just try real hard and muster up some forgiveness. So it's not on our effort, but rather... It's on the supernatural work of God. That's the only way this happens. As God's spirit intersects with ours and it carries us to a higher place. The fancy word for this is called sanctification. In Methodism, we call this sanctifying grace. That's when you put your faith in Jesus, you aren't done. My man Marty showed us this today. He's still going. He's going to re-up on those promises. Marty, I'm going to put you on the spot. Roughly how many years ago were you first baptized? 57 years ago. So let's think about that journey we witnessed today as we read Philippians 1.6. That he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That when we sign up, when we cross the line of faith, that's the starting line, not the finish line. And then it's God's grace that sustains our journey. That having been forgiven by God, the cross would call us higher and that God changes our desire. That we go from desiring vengeance to desire avoiding punishment by being obedient. But ultimately to transcend both vengeance and obedience and to desire good for our enemies. On paper, that makes zero sense. 
Jesus, that's why they're my enemies. Hello? It's only by the power of God that that can happen, and that makes any sense at all. I don't think it looks like closing your eyes and trying real hard. I think it's about emptying ourselves of bitterness and anger. We talked about this in week one. And when we release those to God, we are making room for God's more excellent way. I believe if we will make a space for God to fill and intentionally make time for God, then over time, God's spirit will help our spirit to rise above vengeance and obedience and actually change our desires for our enemies. One of the times that we do that, making time for God, is worship. And so I would say, good for you. You're here. Worship isn't limited to Sunday mornings, of course. But we have dedicated a giant room and carved out time for this process to be possible. To put ourselves in a place, to be in a position where God could be molding our hearts through singing and praying, through studying God's word. That's why we worship. It's for God to change and mold our desires, to be sanctified. Not just to serve coffee or bump up our numbers or hear great music. All of those things happen. But we know we've worshipped if we've been transformed. And so slowly but surely, God transforms our hearts and worship is about putting ourselves in a position to empty ourselves and be filled up by God, to make a space that only God can fill. A couple weeks ago, we read from Psalm 69, and uh, I believe that one, one of those verses said that the psalmist, the author wanted their enemies to be blotted out from the book of life forever. That was a heavy one, and I made some type of joke where no one's got that verse cross-stitched on their wall at home. Well, this next psalm, I believe I have seen a decorative pillow or two with it on it. This is Psalm 37.4. Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Anybody heard that before? I think this is less about praying real hard for Chiefs playoff tickets or acceptance to a college. And I think this verse is more about emptying your heart to be filled by God so that you can desire the things that God delights in. Do you see the difference? That when we delight in the Lord, God will give us the desire for the things God delights in. That our desires would be transformed. The witness of our Amish brothers and sisters teaches us that this work starts long before we're hurt, offended, or grieved and we need to forgive someone. This is about the type of people God is making us to be. That's how we prepare for the journey of forgiveness. It starts a long time before a specific incident. Now, last week, we looked at this chart. And, and we can kind of think about the different phases along the very sophisticated black and white Microsoft table that I inserted on the top is, is, kind of, is represented our desires and what those can look like, kind of the menu. And on the bottom are the results of those things, the things we do with our desires, the things we live out. And so the first two are really still both in the vengeance phase. When we don't want to forgive someone and we don't do it, 
That's pretty self-explanatory. We're still in vengeance mode. We want them to suffer. And then maybe we hear about this Amish book. We think, well, maybe I'll buy that. Or, or um, you know, you hear some, some story or, or maybe you, you come to worship and you think, okay, I do want to. But you don't actually do anything. You don't actually forgive anybody. Well, then you're still in that mode. That's not real progress. But then maybe we, we read a story from Jesus, like the unmerciful servant, and, and we can move into, we, we still don't want to forgive, but we do it out of obedience. I'm here to tell you, good for you. One of the reasons I wanted to put this chart up is to represent that even doing something out of, obedi- out of obedience is massive progress. I think doing something not because you want to, but out of obedience to Christ requires great faith. But that's not where the journey ends. The journey of forgiveness leads us upward towards the cross. And it, it calls us higher. And as, as, and as we follow that journey that Jesus calls us on, our desires actually change. Through the spirit of God, our desires can actually change. And we can come to the transcendent place where we actually want to forgive. It's possible to want the best for our enemies and to pray for them out of a desire of what's best for them. This is an audacious thing to aim for that Jesus calls us to. Now, let me say very clearly, I don't think this typically happens overnight. That's why the transcendent phase is the long haul phase. I also want to say very plainly, desiring the best for someone doesn't mean pretending like nothing ever happened. And whether or not you and this person reconcile is another sermon for another time. What we're talking about today is forgiveness, which we've defined in these three weeks as releasing your right to retribution, letting go of the several excellent reasons you have to want to see that person suffer. And in that way, you're like the king in the parable of the unmerciful servant, that you absorb a great debt because you're letting go the... The, the, the satisfaction of seeing that person suffer. And you come to a place where it's not just out of obedience, but truly a desire of what's best for this person. So I think a great question for us is where do you find yourself on the chart? Now, maybe you're in here or you're online And you can't think of a scenario where you've got unforgiveness going on. One, I think that's great. Two, I'm trying to get you ready for next time. Right? This is about the type of people we are becoming. And so a lot of the work to build our capacity of forgiveness happens long before an incident that inspires vengeance. When Jesus was on the cross, he was lifted up above the crowd. And from that perspective, he looked down on them and prayed for their forgiveness. As the cross calls us higher, God changes our desire. We can transcend vengeance and obedience and come to view people from that higher perspective of Jesus. And we can make the journey from being forgiven by God to forgiving others. Not through our efforts alone, but emptying ourselves of vengeance and making space for God to change our desires. And so a great way to track your progress 
along this journey is to put a twist on the same question we asked ourselves at the beginning. When it comes to your enemies, what do you want from God? Let's spice it up a little bit. Let me rephrase this. When it comes to the Democrats, oh, oh. When it comes to the Republicans, what do you want from God? When it comes to the, the, the younger generation, or fill in the blank, man, whatever that is for you. You guys get the director's cut on the third service. I ain't worried about time. <laughs> when it comes to your enemies, what do you want from God? Do you want God to destroy them? There's another line from the Psalms that says, God, break all their teeth. There's a, there's a lot of them in there. Are you in dental mode with your enemies? Do you want God to forgive them? And this is a little tricky, but I hope you get my meaning here. Even if you don't want to forgive them, do you want to want to someday? I would call that progress. I would. Keep going. I think it's dangerous, maybe not dangerous, I think it's just a losing proposition. Um, when we play the comparison game most of the time. You know, when we compare what we have going on to our lives to Jesus on the cross, or when we compare our capacity of forgiveness to those, those wonderfully faithful folks, the Amish in Pennsylvania. I mean, it, it, just sometimes our stories don't compare with the tragedy or the intensity of other stuff we may hear or read about. But I would encourage you not to worry about that and not to minimize whatever it is you're working with. And throughout this series, you know, as a pastor, I'm trying to thread the needle here because these phases were born out of my own experience. But I'm also trying not to overshare, right? So I wanted to tell you that, that when I was in high school, uh, that my parents divorced, and, and it did not go well. Now, one of the things I try and do, so maybe it's healthy, maybe it's not, is when you're dealing with something tense to, to maybe laugh it off, or we have a phrase in my house, you got to laugh or cry. And so when I say that my parents divorced didn't go well, are there any that do go well, you know? <laughs> hey, how's your divorce going? Fantastic. <laughs> it's going good. We should have it wrapped up here before game time. Like, this is not how it goes. We can say that out loud. And so without dishonoring people in my family, or like I said, oversharing, let's just say there was a rift. And, and, and these phases of vengeance and obedience are, are phases I underwent and personally experienced from the red truck phase of thinking, well, maybe this could be taken care of if, if this person just wasn't around. Or, or rolling my eyes when I hear the story of the unmerciful servant and you just know, you know that, that Jesus doesn't want you to stay desiring vengeance. Just deep down, you know. Because the cross calls us higher. And so the journey took me about a decade. About 10 years. Now I'm 38. 
So that's still a pretty big chunk. So I don't know what it looks like for you. When Sarah and I got married, just to give you a window into where I was at, I was in a place uh, where I didn't invite my own mother to our wedding. Um, It was a few years before Sarah even met my mother after we were married. Uh, But I'm so glad that in the years since, uh, my mom has been present for a lot of milestones, including one that I happen to have a picture at, uh, including my own ordination in uh, 2019. My sister's on the left and my mom is on the right. And now uh, it's a big deal that whenever we all get together, it's just not a big deal. I wanted to tell you that with Jesus in your life, you do not have to remain in a prison of anger and bitterness of your own making. I wanted someone to tell you that the peace that is possible on the other side is worth the journey of forgiveness, my friends. It's worth it. It's, it for me, it wasn't rapid. It wasn't easy. Which, if you'll recall, is what I want most from God. So it wasn't rapid or easy, but it was worthwhile. And that's what I pray for each of us. May God's Holy Spirit enable us to rise above the several excellent reasons we have to desire vengeance. And may we progress to the point where even though we don't feel like it, we forgive because Jesus tells us to. The Bible says, fear the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so if that's where you're at, I would say good for you. You've made it that far. But don't stop. Because beyond obedience, there's something even better. And we talked about this last week when I got all excited at the communion liturgy. We say a thing, when we say a line when we take communion. And, and, and we, we pray to God, free us for joyful obedience. Is that an oxymoron? Joyful obedience. That we would want to obey God, to obey the word of Christ, not because we have to, but because we want to. And that we would love our enemies and pray for them, not rolling our eyes like Tina Fey, but joyfully because that's our desire. Friends, the cross calls us higher. May the Holy Spirit work within each of us to change our desires. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for today, for the chance to be reminded of your great love and forgiveness that you offered us from the cross. God, sometimes I'd prefer if you stopped there. But you've commanded us to forgive others as we have been forgiven. God, wherever we find ourselves on this journey of forgiveness, help us to cling to you. And and, and I ask that you would gently lead us into whatever that next step is. God, we cannot love our enemies or pray for them apart from the work of your spirit in our lives, in our hearts, in our spirits. And so as we continue to worship, would you continue to work within? That you would lift from us the burden of vengeance, 
and that you would help us see that as a parent disciplines their child, so you want the best for us. And being obedient to you is what's best for us, not because you like to make it hard, but because you want us to know the freedom of joyful obedience. Help us, God. We can't do it without you. It's in your son's forgiving, gracious, and powerful name we pray. And everybody said, amen.